Welcome to the Blue Security Podcast, a weekly podcast for information security defenders, where we bring you discussions on best practices, tools, and implementation for enterprise security. Now, here are your hosts for today's show, Andy Ja and Adam Brewer. Welcome to another episode of the Blue Security Podcast. I'm Andy, your host. I'm Adam, your co-host. There's been a lot of news about ChatGPT. We did an episode a few weeks back just talking about it in general, but I think a lot of the news that we're getting now is how organizations are starting to limit the use of ChatGPT. And we're going to dive into some of those companies that are doing that and some of the reasons. And then I think we'll talk about why it may or may not be a good idea. And then also methods of how you might be able to limit ChatGPT. So I think the first instance that was kind of big news was Samsung. That was at the beginning of April where a bunch of Samsung workers uploaded some data about their semiconductors and the engineers were asking ChatGPT to help them fix a problem with the source code. And when they uploaded the question, they unwittingly inputted some confidential data, proprietary secrets like the source code into ChatGPT. And right now there's not a way to remove that data once it's been uploaded because the whole point of having ChatGPT be open to the public is to help train that model. And unlike some of the things that we've talked about, Adam, like Security Copilot or the other Copilot projects that we have going on, that is different because in those sense, the customer's data is in a segmented tenant and it doesn't touch any other customer data as well as it's not used to train the underlying model whereas this is this Mm chat gpt if you go to chat gpt and you enter in data and you ask it something it's going to be used to help train that underlying model and i think samsung did try to go to chat gpt to try to get that data out but i think once it's there it's very difficult to remove so as a result samsung has limited the use of chat gpt it's developing its own in-house ai and it's limiting uploads and requests to only 1024 bytes in size. So very small amount of data can be uploaded. So yeah, this was probably the biggest one. And then if you look at some of the other news that has come out last week on Friday, it was reported that Apple is now limiting the use of ChatGPT and GitHub Copilot. I think that really coincided with also the iOS app. OpenAI released an iOS ChatGPT app Thursday on May 18th. You know, and Apple isn't alone. There's a lot of companies that have been reported to limit the use like Bank of America, Citibank, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, Walmart, Verizon, And also Apple apparently is trying to develop its own generative AI model as well, which is no surprise. So this is a trend and I think it's going to continue. And I think it's not just ChatGPT, like other companies, you know, if you're not Google, you're probably limiting Bard as well. And there's also a Baidu version, which is like the Chinese search engine called Ernie Bot. And so there's several of these large language model bots that are out there. And if you're not part of that company, Company, you're probably looking to limit it if you're a large company with proprietary data. So a little bit of color here before we move forward. Number one, as we mentioned frequently on the show and, and should, Andy and I are both employed by Microsoft. Microsoft has invested significantly in OpenAI, 
which is an organization separate from Microsoft. Microsoft owns 49% of OpenAI, which is not a controlling share. So it is a different organization and not under the control of our employer, although we have a partnership and we've certainly invested in that organization. And OpenAI, of course, is the org that makes ChatGPT, the GPT-4 large language model, the Dolly image generation model, and other AI-like projects. The Apple news I thought was interesting because to someone who's not really up on this, they may conflate that as the same thing. And those would be two very different decisions. So I think Andy and I, as we go through the show, we're going to argue that you probably should take steps to limit the risk of your proprietary corporate information from going to ChatGPT. Whether that means outright blocking it at a DNS level or other blocking methods, we'll get into that. But I think we would argue, yes, you should probably do something because you don't want your sensitive information to go into this model and be used to further train the model. GitHub Copilot, on the other hand, is an enterprise-focused service, and it does have some privacy commitments to organizations that I'm not aware of and I won't get into or speculate on this show because GitHub is a wholly owned subsidiary of Microsoft as well. So also from our employer, Uh, but I'm not familiar enough with GitHub Copilot to speak about it intelligently, so I won't. But I will say there's a very big difference between ChatGPT, which is a public service that very openly says anything you plug into this, we will use versus GitHub Copilot does have privacy commitments and is designed for the enterprise. And so Apple maybe has made a decision. And again, Apple is a highly secretive organization that they don't want to take advantage of that. Also, it's worth noting that Apple writes almost all of their code, either in Objective-C or Swift or Swift UI, which are at this point, Apple exclusive languages, maybe not officially, but in a de facto sense. And so maybe they get less value out of GitHub Copilot anyways, because they don't have broad industry acceptance. There's probably more to the story there is my point on that one. So don't take that and run with like GitHub Copilot's insecure, Apple's not using it. Like there's more to the story and that is an enterprise thing. And there are many very large enterprises who are using that technology and love it. Just did want to clarify that. So with all that said, Andy, I mean, let's get into it. What are some options and lessons that we can take away from this Samsung basically data leakage incident? And what can our listeners think about moving forward? Yeah, I think banning chat GPT may sound like a good response, but it's not going to solve the larger problem. It's going to be like a whack-a-mole because ChatGPT is just one of the many generative AI tools that are coming out and they're just going to continue to come out. So you can do a few things. You can limit output control, which some people have tried to do already, which is essentially limiting what large language models like ChatGPT, Google Bard, the Baidu, ErnieBot can and cannot say. So from the companies themselves, they can filter out and say, okay, we're not going to respond to that. And some of that is there although i have read methods where people have gotten around some of the guards that like say chat gpt has and gotten it to say things that are against its terms so there are ways to get around it you know quote unquote hack the large language model but that is one method you can just continue to try to limit what it can say but that is also not great for growth it's not good for the language model to try to train and it's not going to prevent other people from developing their own like say open source or community models which are becoming more and more popular so you know that's probably not a way that's going to be a method for the majority of organizations to try 
drive to limit. A better way is to control the data that is being sent to the models and connections that are being made to the site or the SaaS app. And ultimately who in the org can use something like ChatGPT because not everybody needs to. So maybe you need to have a business case in order to open it up. So I think there are arguments to be made. As Adam said, I would most likely limit the use of it in a corporate environment if it was my organization. There's also APIs. Think about that. There's apps that are popping up and pulling APIs. So it is difficult. Anytime you're trying to block something or limit something, you know, there you have the implicit allow or explicit deny model, which is I'm going to allow most things. And then the things I don't want, I'm going to deny it. You can block certain apps, but again, it's going to be like whack-a-mole, right? And maybe that's going to be the best way to go for most organizations, just because for user, you know, usability, essentially, it's a lot easier to just allow most things to happen because then the user doesn't feel like security is like big brother. And I have to ask permission to use this application every single time something new comes up and you can just block the things that you think are bad for highly sensitive data or or access or employees like administrators or developers who are working on sensitive code in those cases you probably might be better using an implicit deny explicit allow where we are only going to allow these certain things and every single time something new pops up you're going to have to request access to it but again those are specialized cases i would use that for the ones who are you know dealing with the proprietary code or the data that is highly sensitive that you wouldn't want leaked out like the proverbial kernel Sanders KFC recipe, right? Like <laughs> if, if you had access to that, you don't want them to have access to ChatGPT. So those are my thoughts on like, should we, or should we not ban it? I think if it was me, I would look at ways to limit access to large language models to only people who absolutely need it with a business case. I think you need to do something. And I would argue you should do something that's as portable and reusable as possible. And I'm of the opinion that a lot of the challenge that security teams face is getting buy-in and funding and organizational acceptance to implement different controls. And so one thing I've observed over many years is that data security projects like information protection, data loss prevention, sensitivity labeling, retention labeling, they never bubble up far enough on the priority list to get done. I would say right now you have the attention of your board of directors. You have the attention of your CIO, possibly your CEO too. If there was ever a time to say, you know what, we really need to get a full-blown data security model in place with information protection, data loss prevention, sensitivity labeling, this is a great opportunity to get that buy-in, to say, this is not the first, it won't be the last. And the way we truly solve against this the right way and do it surgically, as opposed to with a sledgehammer is to implement that sort of strategy. So I think Andy, you and I are in agreement that this is an opportunity to do something and you should do something to protect your organization because even compared to risks of the past of like, oh, well, we don't want corporate data uploaded to Google Drive or we don't want it uploaded to a non-corporate file storage solution. We don't want it in iCloud. Like Apple is never, as far as anybody knows, has done anything with corporate data sitting in their cloud. Google never done anything with it. This is different where this model will literally regurgitate it back to other people. So it is a much greater risk than we've ever seen before compared to past concerns, which were mostly very theoretical and, and probably wound up being overblown, right? So I think there's definitely some sort of action required because the risk is greater than we've ever seen in the past. But I advocate for an approach that acknowledges 
this won't be the last time we experience this. So we need a lasting resolution, not a temporary resolution, what you called whack-a-mole. I agree. And whack-a-mole is a sledgehammer approach anyways. It's completely taking useful tools out of the hands of your people. And that's where IT gets this reputation of something new or cool or helpful comes out, block it. Like you are the productivity inhibitors of your organization. Like that's not a reputation you want. So what we want to do as security professionals is find a way to get to yes. And that could be a yes, but, and that's fine, but let's find a way to enable our people to use these tools in a way that still protects organizational data and especially highly sensitive, highly proprietary data. That's our North Star. That's where we want to be. Because if we're taking this old school IT approach of something new and cool comes out, block it and prevent it, then we're no different than, you know, we were 15 years ago when like the iPhone came out and IT department's like, no, we're not doing that. You know, find a way to say yes, right? That's all we should be our North Stars. Find a way to enable productivity, enable new technology, enable new experiences, but do that in a secure way. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about a few methods that Mm -hmm. we could go about limiting. And this really applies to any application or program or website or whatever, but let's talk about specifically with ChatGPT. Now you could block it at the network level, like at the firewall. There are certainly that's old school, you know, some sort of like Barracuda web filtering or something like that, right? Like you have some sort of on-prem firewall filter that you can just add this to it and it'll block it. For modern day technology where you have remote workers, that probably won't work unless they're going through a VPN because then you have to go through the firewall. So, you know, we've talked at length at zero trust architecture and why always on VPN is probably not the way to go these days. But you would have to pipe them through the network to get that to block. Not just always on VPN, but no split tunneling. Right. Or very limited split tunneling, which is also gross. I mean, like, now you're really, <laughs> yeah. I mean, ugh. If, yeah. if that's the way you're architected and that's what you got for now, then, you know, roll them that way, I guess. But you should also be trying to modernize that approach too. Right. And that's an all or nothing, right? That's like you block it at the network and it's just done. It's the sledgehammer approach I was talking about. Yeah. Yep. Now, if you have a more modern architecture, you obviously laptops, maybe some desktops, you could use a CASB, an agent, a proxy, something like Zscaler, Netscope, or Defender for cloud apps and allow that or disallow it through your CASB or your proxy. Um, those are generally done by DNS as well as it is a DNS request. Um, sometimes you can do it by IP, but obviously for this one here, uh, you would do it by DNS. And so that's one way to go. Most Mobile devices. Also, you can restrict app installs if you're using MDM from like, say the app store, because right now we have this iOS app as well. If you have corporate data on your phone, you can limit what apps are getting installed. You could also make sure that it's a specific configuration. You know, if it's a corporate owned device, that's like say used in a very specific purpose, you can have it deployed in a kiosk mode or a specific mode where it's only running the apps that you need. That's one way to go. You can also limit using proxies like Zscaler or Defender for Cloud Apps through uh, the Defender for Endpoint agent that would be on the device as well. But what Adam had alluded to is getting to a way to say 
Yes. So if we try to brainstorm on how we could possibly allow the use of ChatGPT, but at the same time protect our data, we come to a couple of different ways. And not every organization is going to be there today. But one way is, you know, with say Zscaler, something that I've done in the past is Zscaler has the ability to limit uploads, but allow like downloads from a specific SaaS app. And so I use like Gmail as an option here or an example where I can allow a user on a corporate device to navigate to their personal Gmail, allow them to view it, allow them to download things from it, but not allow them to upload anything from their corporate device. Now, that is a step in the direction of where we possibly want to go, but it's still very sledgehammer-ish because you're just kind of blocking all uploads. In this case, it probably wouldn't even work because you do need to input data and send it off. The Microsoft way is really interesting because people often ask, like, how do you do this, right? Like, how do you configure this specific thing? And the way that Microsoft thinks of things is not always the same as how some other security solutions look at it. The reason why we want to limit ChatGPT is data protection is really the whole reason why we're having this conversation is we want to prevent the leakage of corporate data. Someone's going to drop in source code. Someone's going to drop in the secrets of our company into ChatGPT, and then it's there. So how do we protect data? Data loss protection is really the category that we're looking at here. And the way that Microsoft looks at it is we protect the data at the source. So we use sensitivity labels in order to protect or encrypt that data. And you can encrypt it in a way that it can't be cut and pasted or screen shared or screenshotted or printed. If if I have a project, like let's say the word project obsidian is a secret project. If I cut and paste or type in that into a Word document, I can have our DLP solution automatically encrypt that document automatically, right? So if I drop it into mm -hmm. a Teams, that Teams becomes encrypted. So there are ways to protect the data at the source. And then once that data is encrypted with a label with Microsoft information protection, then the data itself, if you try to upload it, would require a key that's escrowed with the company that's you know through your corporate credentials that's signed in to unlock it. So it is protected. So you can't just drop it in somewhere. If I dropped it into my Google Drive, I would still need corporate credentials in order to unlock it. And you can prevent things like offline access. You need to be online in order to talk back to the MFA. You know, you can require conditional access in order to access this data. So there's a lot of things that integrate with a lot of the configurations that we've talked about on this show, like conditional access, like device conditional access, like MFA requirements in order to just access sensitive data once it is labeled. So that would be one way to think about it. Again, obviously, like Adam said, we both work for Microsoft. So there's a lot of different ways, a lot of different security solutions that are out there that can prevent this. But if you're just protecting the data, if my data is protected and I have a good inventory of my data and it's labeled and protected in the way that I want it to be, then I should be able to allow the use of ChatGPT because I know that they can't just drop in data because it's encrypted. I can't cut and paste from you know certain restricted documents or restricted SharePoints or restricted teams. I can't just take that data and cut and paste it into a SaaS app. So that to me, I think is a better way of thinking about it. I agree. And one of the analogies I've used in the past when I've talked about things like information protection, which is that protecting at the document level and the unstructured data level, I've often had customers say like, well, why shouldn't we just encrypt everything? And I say, well, here's the thing. A lot of the data that's created in your organization is not sensitive. It's benign. Janine's having her retirement party in the company cafeteria next Tuesday is not sensitive. It should not be protected. And you're just making more challenge for yourself if you do that. 
And so at the same time, why shouldn't your people be able to go ask ChatGPT, what are some ideas for a retirement party and get some party planning ideas? Like when you take away tools like that, you create resentment. And there's no reason because you've not delivered value to the organization by doing that, right? With that sledgehammer approach to protect the things you're actually concerned about. So we're trying to get you closer to thinking about what is actually sensitive. And so, you know, we can have conversations around data security and information protection at a technology level, but this is where I tie back to what I said earlier is use this hype and this awareness of the Samsung incident, which seems like everyone wants to talk about and use it to create momentum for those projects moving forward to get buy-in for those projects moving forward, because so much of them is not a technology problem. It's a business process change problem. It's a people problem. And at Microsoft, which again, is not the only way to do things, but for what it's worth, we have a really good culture around sensitivity labeling. And we have a lot of tools in our technology stack that can do that automatic labeling Andy's talking about. Going from as basic as essentially regular expression, all the way up to machine learning, trainable classifiers, exact data match, looking up everything against a database of sensitive like employee IDs, as an example. And if it sees one, it flags it. Very, very advanced automatic labeling capabilities. And I'm not sure I've ever had something automatically labeled internally to Microsoft. However, I frequently use our confidential or highly confidential sensitivity labels because I know what that looks like, because I've been trained on that, because we have a culture of using those things. If I have an email I'd never want a customer to see, I will mark it as FTEs only. And that way, even if an account executive tries to forward it to a customer, which has happened before, the technology then saved me from customers seeing something I did not want them to see. And it goes back to that you can solve this with technology, but technology alone is not enough. And so I see this as an opportunity to really go back and say, hey, you know, we don't have sufficient controls protecting our intellectual property, protecting our crown jewels. And to use the example of the KFC recipe of herbs and spices, Colonel Sanders recipe, or, you know, the recipe for Coca-Cola as an example, your organization has some crown jewels like that too. They have something that they consider highly sensitive. How do you recognize that? How do you protect that? And how do you prevent that from going across data boundaries? you don't want it to pass through. Ultimately, all this is, is it's a referendum on where your maturity is at with that approach. Because if you're already really mature in that space, then you don't have a problem. You already have all those protections in place. And at a rudimentary level, this could be just a robust endpoint DLP solution too. And there are solutions from companies other than Microsoft that are very, very good. And they see everything that flows to and from SaaS apps. They know what your allowed providers are. And if it's not on the list and it it matches some sort of criteria, don't let it go through. And that doesn't have to be sensitivity labeling. It could just recognize, again, regular expression or other things that it could flag on. And that doesn't even have to be a Microsoft solution, but that could probably get you 90% of the way toward preventing inadvertent data leakage to this. But the other part of this too, I went back to this being a people problem, is this worth training your people on like, hey, you know, don't send company data to stuff that's not like a company thing, you know? And that's an ongoing thing. And we talk about that with like phishing test with your people, you'll never get 100%. So you need other controls in place, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. I don't think anyone's advocating for, don't try to train your people not to respond to phishing emails. Like I think universally 100% of organizations do that, or at least are trying to do that. I don't think anyone's waved the white flag and said, we give up, we're not going to try anymore. And this is the same thing. Are you having those conversations with your people about what are appropriate places to use company data and to send company data? I think a lot of orgs aren't having those conversations yet. They might have it in like some piece of paper that employees sign on day one when they get hit 
it with 90 different policies and they're trying to understand a whole bunch of stuff beyond just IT policies? Are you doing ongoing and regular training about that? Because to me, when I think back on my past lives and other organizations, that was never really well discussed. And I think there's opportunity to get better at that as well, both from a people perspective as well as a technology perspective. Yeah. And if you already have an endpoint DLP solution, this is something to look at you know, as a method to restrict use. But if you aren't using endpoint DLP or some other way to block it, you probably maybe own information protection, like what Adam is talking about, which is essentially self-labeling different things. It does require an admin to set up those labels, but there's no automation. You're just labeling when you think you need something labeled, like you can have an FTE or an internal label for internal employees only. You can say restricted, you know, no printing, no copying, stuff like that. So that is licensed with the ME3 or the EMS E3 license. And a lot of organizations own that licensing. So it's, I think it's one of the most underutilized features within the M365 suite. You know, like Adam said, information protection often drops down in priority over the years because something else pops up and it is largely an employee training issue because the technology is very easy to scope and it's very easy to use, but it is training your people on what the labels mean and how and when is appropriate to use certain labels. So, you know, mm -hmm. take a look at that. If you own it already, then spin up a project and, you know, try to get training for this because it would be pretty easy to deploy. It's one of the easiest things to deploy as far as the technology goes. Right. There's not a lot of buttons to push or levers to pull, as I always tell customers, and yet so few of them have it deployed. And that's because it's bigger than a technology problem. So this is where our listeners, you're going to be a seat at a table, but you're not going to be able to deploy it unilaterally. And that's okay. I've been talking about information protection my entire career at Microsoft, which is six years and counting now. And Andy's 100% right. Everybody, almost everybody owns at least the manually labeling, which is really where you should start anyways. And it's still highly underutilized. And this is absolutely a way. And when Andy and I thought about the show, it wasn't like, well, let's go on and tell everyone to use this stuff. But it's really when I've been asked by customers, that is the guidance I give them is you already have probably all the tools you need to protect against this. It's time to use them is really what this is. And so this can be kind of that push to go back and be like, guys and gals, we need to get really uh, more serious about it. And I think this is a great opportunity because again, you have that awareness outside of IT, outside of InfoSec right now. Everyone's talking about this stuff and they're concerned about it. I have had so many customers concerned, like wanting to know about our co-pilots. Are they going to do the same sort of thing? Which they're not, but what can they do about this risk? And that's where I go back to, well, sorry, the answer is kind of boring, but it's information protection and data loss prevention. It's a data security strategy. Yeah. And I think if you're talking about square one, like where should you start with a data loss prevention strategy? It is data inventory. Where is my sensitive data? And of course, that is always the hardest part. So start small because you know where the Coca-Cola secret is right in your company. Like that would be the crown jewels. That would be the thing that you want to start trying to protect and then go out from there. But yeah, it starts with data inventory, which is always, always the hardest part. Know your data. And the other thing, we used to have this on a slide several years ago, and I don't know why it went away because it's still relevant, maybe even more relevant. This problem is never going to be smaller than it is at the time you hear this. This problem is only growing because your organization's data estate and the data estate 
that every organization is growing exponentially. This problem only gets harder to solve literally every single day that goes by. So the time to start on this was yesterday, but yesterday's gone. So what can you do today? Maybe it's time to stop kicking the can on this one because it is crazy. Like, you know, if, you, if your data estate today is exabytes, it could be even bigger, you know, four times as big in a couple of months or whatever. I mean, it's truly exponential growth, what we're seeing right now, this explosion of new data being created. And where I always tell orgs to start as well is you do need to know your data. You need to know kind of what your risks are, but you, you just got to draw the line in the sand and move forward. People get too hung up on how are we going to get all our old stuff labeled? Like that's already in the past. Like, you know, you may want some sort of strategy to go through and crawl that and take some action on it. But the more important thing is you're probably going to create more data in the next year than you created in the previous, you know, five years or something like that. There's a stat that you can find, but that's the point is if you keep looking backwards, you're missing the opportunity to fix it moving forward, which is actually the greater opportunity. Great call out. So the final point, and this is really, I went to ThoughtCon in Chicago over the weekend and I was talking with a friend of the show, Nate Gardner, who has been here on the show before. And he was talking about how every time he went to ChatGPT, he was having a hard time actually accessing it because if you ever try to access it during the day, there's a queue, unless you're like paying some sort of premium fee, I think you can get in. But otherwise, if you're just regular Joe trying to log in, there is a queue and sometimes it's too busy and they're still trying to you know, spin up more servers or whatever. If you need it, um, it is now generally available is something called Bing Chat. If you're all familiar with Microsoft Bing, it's like the search engine. But now if you look at the different tabs in there within the search engine, there's something called Chat. And that's integrated with the mobile app. It's integrated with the web app and you can ask it just regular questions and it will answer using the API of ChatGPT on the back end and it will cite its sources, which is something that ChatGPT doesn't actually do within the ChatGPT app on the web. With the Bing chat, it uses the large language model on the back end, but then also cites the websites that it finds and crawls and kind of uses the Bing search engine on top of the large language model. So really cool. And that's something that you could use, you know, in lieu of say ChatGPT. Right. It was on waitlist. And so kind of the news we're sharing with our listeners is it's off waitlist. And I believe all you need is a free public Microsoft account now, and you can take advantage of this. So you do have to sign in with your Microsoft account, I think is the one requirement still, but then it's publicly accessible, no waitlist required. And to Andy's point, it is a GPT-4 large language model, but also backed by a search engine's worth of modern current information. So a lot of the knock on chat GPT is, you know, it, it has a certain like time frame where it doesn't know anything past that. There's like a date where it has no future awareness. Bing chat does not have that problem because it's as current as the search engine, which is crawling constantly, you know, all day, every day. And so you can get more current results with that as well. So it's a really nice tool. If you haven't taken a look at it, Google's working on something similar called Bard, which is in kind of a limited invite only public preview, which I'm in as well. And so you can try to check that out too, if you want to do a little head to head comparison, but it makes sense having these tools integrated with a search engine because then they can cite their sources and then they're also more current and up to date. So that's a great option. And so far there are some limits around that service, like how many queries you can do in a day and how long the queries can be and how many like back and forth turns you can have. But those are constantly being increased within limits because people were doing kind of what you talked about earlier, Andy, with like trying to hack these agents. They were like having conversations 
friends with them and they just get really confused because they try to keep context of the whole conversation and they're not designed to do that. And so if you may have seen some reports of them saying really odd stuff, it's because that was before some of those limits were put in place and the results were unexpected. Basically, it wasn't tested that you would talk to it like it was a sentient being, which they are most certainly not. They're essentially really glorified autocorrect. Does a really nice job with what it does, but there's no intelligence there whatsoever, right? They're just really good at writing uh, very nice, maybe overly verbose English and synthesizing data into nicely formatted English, which is a, don't get me wrong, an incredibly useful tool that is really amazing, but just know like it's not something you can go have a conversation with, right? It might look like that, but there's nothing there. It's just saying what like statistically is likely to come up next. Yeah. So hopefully gives you some food for thought. And if you haven't gotten a chance and you own it, go take a look at the Microsoft Information Protection, scope out a few labels, test it out. That's our show for this week. Thanks for watching and listening as always. Our contact information will be in the show notes if you have any questions or future topics you want us to talk about. Thanks. We'll talk to you guys next week.